I want to start um, with a small confession. I don't want you to think bad of me, so it's only a small confession. Uh, but it is true that very infrequently in my life have I ever begged Jesus. Uh, if you read about prayer and if you have yourself been engaged in prayer in a, a time where you have sought the Lord emotionally, powerfully, you know kind of what it's like to beg Jesus. I have done so a number of times, a couple of major events in my life that have required or have led me to actually begging for Jesus. But I have to say that that's not my normal stance. I have the very great privilege of praying for many of you. As I look out right now, I can see folks that I have prayed and prayed earnestly for. I want to acknowledge that, that uh, my prayers, I seek to be very faithful in my prayers to the Lord for you and on behalf of you and for myself. Uh, and seek passionately the Lord and his good for you. But I'm not sure that I would necessarily use the term begging the Lord. Uh, that implies for me an emotional outpouring, uh, uh, almost a grief-stricken inner relationship, seeking after God with, uh, with a great passion and a fervor. Uh, again, on some level, I, that, that's characteristic of some of my prayers. But I wouldn't necessarily say I often am begging Jesus. The passage of scripture in which we are looking at today, the events that unfold that Mark dictates for us in chapter 5, surround or center around three different groups of people who beg Jesus. And the text is real clear there in using the term, and we should envision that what's happening here is that these three different people are begging Jesus. They are absolutely have that emotional, full-blown component of throwing themselves before the Lord and yearning for him. So as we work our way through this passage, I want you to have in mind, if you have, and I trust that, that the Lord has led you at some point to a spot where you have been begging Jesus. I want you to have that kind of emotional experience in the back of your mind as we work our way through the events that Jesus unfolds before us that Mark records for us in Mark chapter 5. As Dan read it earlier, this is coming right off of the scenes at the end of chapter 4, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, where Jesus confronts the violence of the storm. Do you remember they're crossing the Sea of Galilee, and there's this massive storm that is coming, and the disciples are terrified, and Jesus confronts the violence of the storm and calms the storm. Well, they land now in verse 1 of chapter 5, they land on the far side of the shore. Uh, now, this is going to be Gentile territory, so not Jewish land, but rather Gentile territory where Jesus lands. And as soon as he steps off the boat, he is confronted by a violent man. Just like he left a violent storm, now suddenly you have this violent man that comes and approaches Jesus. And Mark goes out of his way to identify two things about this man. The first is that he is basically spiritually depraved in every possible way. Mark describes the uncleanness, which would have been the, the way in which they would have articulated the spiritual collapse, the spiritual depravity of a human being. He's unclean. He lives in an unclean land. This is the Gentile land. He is surrounded by unclean animals, all the pigs that were, the story talks about. This just details an, an uncleanness of it. But worse than that, he's running around naked. He, he, he's, he is 
given up a sense of humanity here. He's, he's uh, lost his cleanness, his appropriateness before God. Worse than that, he's living in the tombs. This is that he's actually living in a graveyard, and he spends the nights howling in the graveyard, etc., and he's cutting himself with stones. He's possessed by an unclean spirit. We are supposed to walk away. Mark paints this beautiful picture of a loathsome individual, a wretched life. He is unclean spiritually, but he also reflects this dehumanization, this lack of humanity, this, his loss of humanness, the way in which he is portrayed as, as an animal. He has this strength, this animalic strength that bursts bounds. They can't, the, the townspeople, the word here is actually taming. The townspeople nearby can't tame this individual. He's lost his sense of humanity. He's become more and more of an animal in the middle of the night, howling as he works through the tombs, scratching and degrading his own body. Now, this is characteristic of what the demons are all about. The demons, the satanic forces that are at work in this world, seek nothing more than to express their hatred for God. But they can't do anything to God. They are impotent in light of his sovereignty and of his power. And so they attack the very image of God. The image of God is humanity. And so they attack humanity and seek to degrade and undercut and and destroy the very image of God that is present. And we continue to see that demonic work at play in our society and in our culture all around us. Any institution, any belief, any thought process that does not voluntarily bend the knee to the Lord ultimately is serving Satan and is working to undergird and to, uh, sorry, to undercut and to degrade the very essence of humanity. All the lies that we are told, all the ways in which the world portrays, look, this is the way you can live a good life, or this is the way in which the world can be blessed, or this is what you can do to better yourself. All of those thoughts, all of those processes are an ultimate lie and they work to degrade the very humanity that God himself has created. Because that's what Satan does. He attacks the very humanity that is in us and there is nothing in this world that presses in upon us as believers that does not reveal that deterrent. Now it might take years for that to happen. We may not even see it. But any look at humanity, any look at history reveals the philosophies of the age and how eventually they're always put forward as something that's going to help you. This diet plan, this worldview, this way of looking at your identity, all of these things ultimately are held up as something that is going to benefit you and be good for you. And in the end, it does nothing but degrade and ruin you as a human being. But we don't have to look outside to see that happen. Because that's what sin does right here in my own heart, right here in the presence of this group. We see the degrading work of sin consistently working against the blessings of God, the created image of God in which he has made you to further erode that which God has done in your life.
We don't have to just see outside the church walls, outside of the Christian faith, to see the degradation and the attacks of Satan and the demonic powers in this world at work. We simply have to look at the brokenness of sin in our own lives and we see that same anti-God at work in our hearts. So this demon-possessed man comes and throws himself before Jesus. Uh, It's interesting how even the demons, in their hatred of the Lord, can't but come before Christ and throw themselves at his feet. And what does this demon-possessed man do? I love this. Look at verse 10 and verse 11 or 12 if you have your scriptures before you. This demon-possessed man, he begs Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. They begged him saying, send us into the pigs and let us enter them. Again, you need to picture that word begging. This is not the demons requesting something of Jesus. This is not the demons saying, hey, could we work out some kind of a deal here? These are the demons expressing themselves through the man whom they have possessed, crying out, begging Jesus, pleading with him. And what are they pleading with him? Send us away. Send us apart from you. Separate us from you. Get us away from you. And once again, we see this consistently in the world. Anytime the church puts its foot forward, anytime the gospel message comes forward with any power, I guarantee you there's going to be something in this world, some institution, some philosophy, some thought process, some picture from your kids or something like that that is going to scream, no, get away from me. I don't want anything to do with this. And the church expresses itself violently, sorry, the world expresses itself violently by begging Jesus, get away from us. Send us away from you. We want nothing to do with you. But we don't just have to see that in the world. We can see that in our own hearts and who each one of us are. Even those of us who are passionate followers of the Lord, are there not times where you want to say, Lord, just let me watch this show. Lord, let me just have this period of gossip with my friends. Lord, let me just have these thoughts about this individual. Just stay away from me while I have these thoughts. Now, it doesn't last with the people of God, but you're kidding yourself if we don't act exactly like Legion here at times, saying, Lord, send us away from you. Keep us away from you. And so the man says, the demon-possessed man says, he's Legion, by the way. When Jesus says, what's your name? He says, I'm Legion. Uh, and, and Legion, if you know, it's a military term from the Roman emperor. It's 5,600 men. It's the largest military unit that existed, and it is the military unit by which the Romans oppressed the world. And so I don't know that they're necessarily saying there's 5,600 demons in this man. I don't think that's the picture. The picture is that this is an overwhelming, oppressive, negative thing that has fallen upon this man, and they beg Jesus Send us away from you and send us into the pigs. And so Jesus sends them into the pigs and there's lots of questions about why it is that the pigs run down the hill and drown themselves into the sea. I think it's fairly straightforward. That's the destructive work 
of the demons. They are here to destroy if it is in our lives or if it is in the lives of the people around us or in society around us. They are out to destroy that which God has done. And so they destroy the pigs that are there. And then we have the passage of Scripture, the rest of the story, beginning in verse 14. Let's look together at Mark chapter 5, verses 14 through 20. And as I read the passage of Scripture here, if you'd please stand before our Lord. Let's stand together if you can. The herdsmen, this is the ones who were taking care of the pigs that have just drowned themselves in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it is that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and to tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. And this is the word of the Lord. Dear Lord, we do pray for your presence here right now at this time. Indeed, Lord, at our best we would be begging for it, for we desire, Lord, to be in your presence, that you would give us insight and wisdom, that you would direct and guide us now and forevermore, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So we have the second picture now of the, the herdsmen go running into town, and you can picture what had happened. There are 2,000 pigs. I don't know what that costs, but I assume that that's a lot of money. 2,000 pigs just went down and drowned themselves in the sea, and they had seen this Jesus dealing with this demon-possessed man. It's absolutely clear that Legion was well-known within the area. Everybody knew Legion. Everybody knew of this demon-possessed man. And so here, suddenly, Jesus frees this demon-possessed man. The pigs all run into the sea. The herdsmen are terrified or whatever. And they run into town, and they say, you can't believe what had happened. Now, what takes place after this, then? The townspeople, they are curious. Notice what happens in verse 15 and 14. The people came to see what had happened. There's a curiosity here among the townspeople. They've heard about Jesus, and they say, hey, let's figure out what this is going on. Wouldn't it be wonderful if every action of your life, of every moment of your interactions with the world were such that people would be curious about Jesus? that the way you talked about him, that the way you lived your life by not talking about him, the way that they saw you pray, the way that they saw you interact with your fellow man, the way they saw you love and care for people was such that they were curious about Jesus. But not just the world, right here. Wouldn't it be great if your heart was so open 
that when you heard the gospel message, when you were confronted by the scriptures, that there was a yearning, that there was a curiosity to know more. So the townsmen are curious. And then look at verse 15. What, does, what happens to the townsmen? They come to Jesus and they see the demon-possessed man. What, now the man is sitting, quiet, clothed, in his right mind, and look at the end of verse 15, and they were terrified. Do you remember the disciples riding out the storm on the, on the Sea of Galilee, and they are scared, they're frightened about what's going on, and then Jesus stands up and calms the storm, and flashback to the disciples, and they are terrified. They're more terrified of Jesus than they were of the storm. Here you've got the townspeople that they come. They're curious about Jesus, but then they come and they see what Jesus has done. They see the healing that has taken place. They see that this one that they haven't been able to control, this guy that has haunted and howled at nights, this one who has lived like an animal, is now peaceful in Jesus, at Jesus' feet where they were frightened of legion beforehand, now they're terrified at Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if we lived our lives in such a way that the world was curious about Jesus? But isn't it true that all too often when that happens and then as soon as the world sees what a Christianity really is. Oh, as long as they can envision Christianity as, well, it's a bunch of nice people and stuff like that, and love, 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 or whatever, and they minimize and they forget the essence of a God who redeems his people, who gives his life for his people. As long as they just envision God and church the way in which they want to, they're a little curious. But as soon as they are confronted by the actual claims of Jesus Christ, as soon as they are confronted by the transformed life, what it is that Christ actually does in our hearts, how he changes us, how church is not just something that you go to once or twice a week or once or twice a month. No, whenever God's people gather to worship, the faithful follower comes to worship. We don't submit ourselves to the scriptures, oh, just once on Sunday or something like that. No, this, the, the call on a believer is to submit to the scriptures every day, every second of our lives. Service is not something that the Christian does whenever we want to be good or whenever we want a good feeling about ourselves. No, service is something that is the lifeblood of the Christian. We love one another and we love those who are outside of the church because not because we're trying to earn marks or because we get a good feeling, but because that is the vocation of every single Christian. And when the world sees that, this is what Christianity is. This is what it demands. This is what it's given. This is the blessings of this. The world, just like the townspeople, do what? Verse 16. Nope. Verse 17, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. So we have these folks that are curious. We have our neighbors that are curious. We have our coworkers that kind of like the good things that you bring because you're a Christian. 
and they're curious. And yet as they start looking deeper, and as you start revealing more, and as they see what it is that Christianity really is, they are repelled, they are afraid, they are frightened because of what it might possibly mean in their lives. And so they say to Jesus, get away from us. Go away from us. And this is echoed over and over again in the institutions of this world, in the philosophies of this world, in the individuals of this world, and right here in my own heart, and right here in this place. Is it not true that there are times when the demands of Jesus press in on you and you say, I I just want to have this quality time with myself, or I want to just watch this one thing, or I just want to be by myself for a little bit of time, or I just want, Lord, just give me this. And we hold the claims of Jesus Christ at arm's length. The demon said, send us away from you, Jesus. And the townspeople say, Jesus, get away from us. And the world does both of those things, and so do we. So do I. Because we are afraid of what we see when the Lord transforms us. Which, of course, is the picture in verse 15. In verse 15, then they came to Jesus, the crowd comes to Jesus, and they see the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, and what is he doing? He is sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. He is sitting there. This is the posture of discipleship. This is the posture of learning. This is the posture of of educate. This This is a willingness to teach me. Why? Because it ultimately is a posture of humility. The crazed man, the one whom no one had been able to control, they couldn't even chain him down. He is breaking every chain, but suddenly he comes against a tie that he cannot break. It is the tie of Jesus Christ and Christ's love and redemption. It is healing for this man and in healing in this man, suddenly he is humble and subdued and he is willing to learn of the things of Jesus. He is humble at his feet and he is clothed. He is clothed. He had been naked. He had been in this animal state but he has reclaimed or the Lord has restored his humanity, his dignity. And he becomes then to express again, the disciple of the Lord comes to express again the humanity by which God has created us. And so we sit at his feet in a posture of humility and we hear the image of God being reworked in our lives, that humanity restored and he is in his right mind. That's the third description of, of the man. The, the demon-possessed man or the healed man is in his right mind. Now, what do we mean by that? That he is at peace. He is calm. This is the shalom that Jesus brought to the waters. So he is now brought to the demon-possessed man. And this is the picture that is a reality on some level for every Christian in this place 
And it is a picture in which we hold forward for each and every one of us that what the Lord desires and what the Lord is doing in your life is that he is submitting you to himself. He is humbling you before him so that you might experience the fullness of that restoration of who God created you to be so that you might be at peace. So what takes place here with this, he- this healed man, the demon-possessed man who is now freed? In verse 17, the crowd begins to beg Jesus to depart from their region. They're yearning, they're They're so terrified that they're begging him to leave. And then verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, so Jesus says, fine, and he goes ahead and he leaves. As Jesus is getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons, what does he do? He begs him, begs Jesus, let me be with you. The core the center of any discipleship, the center of any relationship, the center of divine love and the redemptive work in your life is being with Jesus. And the man who has been healed, he comes and he begs Jesus, it's not enough for me to do the right things. It's not enough for me to come to worship once a week. It's not enough for me to have my devotions. It's not enough for me to serve one another. Because the essence of what it is to be a believer is to be with Jesus. And he begs for that. That's the yearning. That's that. It's, it's not that he asks. I have asked. My hope is that you have asked to be with Jesus. But this man, who has experienced this incredible transformation of his life, he doesn't ask. He begs, Jesus, let me be with you. For whatever reason, there's lots of speculation on this, Jesus says no. Jesus does not permit him in verse 19, but says instead what? Go. Go. An undeniable part of every Christian. You are to go. Go where? Go home. That's family. Go to your friends. Eventually, we see in verse 20 that he goes to Decapolis. Decapolis would have been the whole surrounding area. It would have been quite of a massive area for one person to cover. To go home. And what's he supposed to do? He's supposed to, this is really interesting. Make sure you catch this at the end of verse 19. He is supposed to go home and he's supposed to tell them two things. Tell them what the Lord has done for you. Proclaim Jesus Christ. Talk about his glory Talk about his power. Talk about his majesty. Talk about his redemption. Talk about Jesus Christ. Go and proclaim what the Lord has done for you. That's first. But secondly, go and tell about the mercy that you have experienced. Go and tell about the mercy. Mercy. So tell about the power. Tell about the glory. Tell about all that God has done. 
but realize that it is tied to the expression of God's mercy and His grace. In other words, it is tied to my sin. It is tied to your sin. We cannot talk about God's mercy if we are not able and willing to stand before the world and to say, this is the sin in my life. If I can't say in my heart, heart, this is the sin that resides here, then I cannot proclaim the mercy of our God. And in verse 20, what does he do? He went away and began to proclaim. That is, he broadcast, he announced, he never stopped proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world out there desperately needs this because the demonic work of this world is anti-God and it is slowly and consistently undercutting and undergirding, keep saying that, undercutting what it means to be a human being. It is ruining human beings that are made in the image of God. And that's precisely what is happening inside every heart of every Christian as sin grabs a hold and won't let go. And so the same message holds for the world out there as it holds in our own hearts that we would beg Jesus that we could be with him. Lord in heaven, we do at this time come before you seeking the blessings that only you can provide, seeking that gift of your grace and mercy that as you have healed this demon-possessed man, as you have brought peace into his heart, as you have restored the image of God in him, as you have allowed him to be humble at your feet. So we pray that you would be humble, that you would allow us to be humble before you, that you would call us to yourself, and that we would be with you now and forevermore. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.